All right, we've made it to Joshua 5, and uh, one of the reasons that is exciting to me is many of the things that we've talked about in Joshua 1 through 4 come into play in Joshua 5. If y'all notice the reason that we so often preach hour and a half messages on Sunday morning, we have a hard time eliminating anything... uh, that we want to share with you, you know, I mean, we don't hold anything back. Uh, most of those messages would easily be a, a sermon series for a month in today's church, you know. Uh, and you might hear more scripture references in a, in a single meeting here than you could get in several months in a lot of churches. Uh, this kind of preaching has been criticized uh, for obvious reasons, you know, we have a uh, a generation without an attention span these days, but the thing is, is once you start to get kind of a global picture of the word, all the pieces start to fit together, and it cuts down on misunderstandings from staring at a single tree and missing the forest. Well, I say all that to say, there's some things I've wanted to tell you in Joshua 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, and I couldn't because you needed those four pieces to get to Joshua 5, and uh, these kind of meetings I really enjoy. I like that bigger picture. Um, y'all want to hop into it? Yeah. Well, Peyton, pray for us. Jen, you find Joshua 5. And uh, then we'll start to read together. Hallelujah. Uncircumcised because he had not been circumcised on the way. 
After the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Hallelujah. Amen. You got to love that verse. And Joshua did so. Yeah. I love this chapter. Uh, I think by the end of the evening, you'll love the chapter. Uh, you'll see some connecting points to the other chapters. Let's start with uh, a few scriptures. Amen. 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 Y'all ready? Yes. So uh, you may have to help me with a few names tonight. Uh, our crowd is growing beyond the limits of our house, and uh, that's a good thing, right? Amen. Amen. So let's let's start right here because I, I, I Rob got a haircut and uh, he don't want to be he don't want to be single anymore. So he's, he's not hiding, you know. He's not incognito. This is this is our new sharp dress, Rob. And, and, and Rob, you take Exodus fifteen thirteen through sixteen. Justin, you take Exodus twenty three twenty seven. Lamar, you take Deuteronomy 2.25. Frank, you take Deuteronomy 11.25. Nick, you take Deuteronomy 28.10. Sam, Joshua 2.9. And then, Carlos, you're just going to read um, Joshua 5.1 again to emphasize something. How many scriptures was that, Saints? Seven. Seven. <laughs> And like so many of the hepatic structures in the Bible, you're going to see six that are doing the work, and in the seventh, we have the culmination, the reality. You'll pick it up as we go, I promise. Exodus 15, 13 through 16. In your unfailing love, will you... In, sorry. In your... Exodus 15, 13 through 16. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord. Until the people you bought pass by. Consider this. Israel leaves Egypt fully armed, but never having experienced warfare. They get to their very first battle. They're hemmed in by the Red Sea. Pharaoh's behind them, but do they fight? No. They don't. God does it for them. 
one of the serious considerations that they have to have is we have all of this military equipment, but we've never used it. In fact, what has been their occupation for almost 400 years? Slaves. Okay? They haven't had any free time. They haven't had a chance to train. They haven't had a chance to educate themselves on anything. If there was ever a disenfranchised generation, this was it. If there was ever a group of people that would have a reason to feel inadequate, this would be it. And God promises them at the same time he's destroyed Egypt's uh, army, hey, I'm going to guide you in loving kindness and the nations that you're afraid of, I promise they're more afraid of me. That's, that's literally what he says. This is the promise that happens immediately after they cross. Promise number one. Exodus 23-27 I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. Towards the end of the book of Exodus, he promises not only will the nations that would normally oppose you be afraid of you, they're going to run from you. That's, that's got to be good news, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lamar. Deuteronomy 2.25 This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon peoples everywhere under the heavens who, when they hear the report of you, will tremble and, and be in anguish because of you. In anguish? Now, no place on the word dreads here. Dreads are a good thing, right, Lamar? <laughs> this kind of dread, though, it's, it means that they are nail-biting scared. And who's going to make them that way? God. The same loving God dealing with Israel is willing to take the enemies of Israel and cause their hearts to be in anguish to make sure they don't hurt His people. Okay? This ought to be making you feel pretty secure about being a child of God. Okay? Frank. Deuteronomy eleven twenty-five. No man will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as He promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land, wherever you go. Okay. Again, we're hearing it repeated and repeated, but each time you're hearing it repeated, we're going forward many years in history. We're no longer at the uh, time of their deliverance. We're in the middle of their stay in the desert. Okay. So uh, now, uh, our next Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28.10. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. Something about the presence of God with this nation would strike fear into the hearts of the nations that didn't have the presence of God. Okay, Joshua 2.9 and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. So Rahab, who the New Testament calls twice a prostitute, but never a liar, even though she told a lie. The eye-opening experience that she had, the thing that brought her to the Lord, was she was very well aware, as was everybody in Jericho, uh, that God was with Israel and fear had fallen on them. We love this woman because she never questions God's judgment. She never looks and says it's not fair. She never uh, says, but my, my, my grandma is innocent. She doesn't do all of the things that people do. 
Instead, she esteems God's judgment is right. And what was the chief witness to her? The fear of God has fallen on everybody around us. Okay, that was number six. Number seven, Carlos. And it came to be when all the sovereigns of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan westward and all the sovereigns of Canaanites who were by the sea heard that uh, the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had passed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because the children because of the children of Israel we find the seventh time this promise is stated it is fulfilled the Israelites are standing right about here on this TV screen opposite Jericho in a place that we learned would later be called Beth Bara sometimes also referred to as Bethany and he says the Amorites that were west of the Jordan were in fear and all the Canaanites along the coast do you see how word of what had happened in the desert way out here has already spread throughout the land grant that they're supposed to get God has fulfilled his word in 38 years or actually it's been 40 at this point in 40 years what has been happening is the people have been unfaithful but God has been faithful and he waited for a generation who would obey him and he had already prepared the playing field for them. Amen. There's a message in this for you. Amen. His promises are faithful. Yeah. He's just waiting for that moment in you <coughs> when you can rise to trust him and then he has already set up the field for your success. Amen. Seven times this is stated, but on the seventh time it was fulfilled. Yeah. Ah, what would have happened if they wouldn't go in? For God's promises to be fulfilled, you can kill that. For God's promises to be fulfilled, the people will have to be faithful. If anything is going to happen in your life that is faithful, that is true, that is right, it's going to have to happen because you trust the Lord. If we could take an attitude like Rahab that says we know all of God's ways are right, whether it seems good for us, bad for us, we know God's ways are right and spend a little less time questioning your maker and more time obeying him, wow. you'll see extraordinary things. Yeah. One of the most disheartening things in American Christianity is the frivolous nature with which people throw around questions about God. Like somehow his character is in question and you're fit to judge it. Yeah. The, one, the one thing that we know for sure is that God's character is immutable. Yeah. It's, it's beyond question. The second most trustworthy thing that you know is that your own heart is wicked. Mm -hmm. So don't trust it. Instead, trust God's Word. Amen. His Word will tell you how to feel. Your, your body will lie to you about how to feel. How many times have you desired something that would kill you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It'll lie to you. Your emotions will lie to you. How many times have you felt drawn to something or repelled by something and later found out that you were on the wrong side of that? It happens all of the time. So... Let's get something very clear up front. Our spirit is supposed to know and obey God's Word. Amen. Amen. Your mind, will, and emotions are supposed to obey your spirit. Your emotions were not given you to control you or enslave you. They were given you to serve you. Your spirit and your soul together are supposed to gang up on your flesh and say, walk here, speak here, eat here, sleep here. You're supposed to live with your spirit controlling the rest of your life. So often, we live in exactly 
the opposite direction, which is why Paul spoke about the Corinthians and said, your God is your stomach. Because they were living lives that were controlled by fleshly desires. It would be a good time for a gut check. Right now, is your life more controlled by your fears, your emotions, more controlled by your physical needs, or more controlled by what God has told you in His Word is true? See, don't absolve yourself too quickly. That's something that you should wrestle with a little bit. You should examine every area. Because Christians are great at going, oh, I know he'll provide for me, and then biting their nails about how they're going to pay their bills. Christians are really great at saying that they have the right answer and living as if they have no idea what the answer is. And we want to be a faithful people like Joshua, going into the land, advancing the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Okay. Uh, read verses 2 through 6. Who wants to do that? I'll read it. Brother said, I will read it. And you know, how can we say no? Blades here with us. <laughs> At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised them. Aren't you so glad there's a verse that explains this? Yeah. I, looks, looks a little bit like we're. Um, in the school of the reign of Bobbitt, you know? <laughs> Circumcised again is an ugly thought, right? It's like, once, what, then up? How many times can you do this? The next verses explain it, and so we won't have to spend a lot of time. Once you get past the idea of a flint knife, right? I mean, there are some pretty barbaric practices in the world, but a flint knife, this is pretty tough. Once you get past that idea you'll recognize what again is. He, he, he explains it in these verses. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Geba, Harak. Now this is why he did so. All those who came from Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out have been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not the Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord has sworn to them that they would not see the land that he has solemnly promised to their fathers to, to, their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. You, you, you got it. Um, while we're talking about this... You, can, you, you recognize that we're not circumcising the same person again, right? Um, which would be a, a, an unfortunate a misinterpretation for whoever held that. Consider this fact. We've just crossed the Jordan, seen God's mighty hand. We have just uh, been given intel. Uh, the, uh, the, the woman Rahab has said the whole city is melting with fear. They were on high alert. They noticed as soon as there were two guys that entered into the city that didn't belong, right? I mean, that, that indicates kind of a status, right? Yeah. Now's the time to attack. Now's the time to go after it. That is not what happens. <laughs> the enemy's scared. You have the advantage. It's time. And that is not what happens. Instead, they receive word from God that they're supposed to hobble their entire army. <laughs> You learn from reading about the events at Shechem, which I, I don't have time to teach on tonight, that this 
incapacitated a man for at least three days. Hmm. Remember that three days. Mm -hmm. That's an important part of this story today. Uh, incapacitates them for three days. Does that sound like good strategy? Is, is there a military strategist in the world that would recommend the moment you cross into enemy ter territory, you disable your entire army? No. And let's talk about that army for a second. If everybody who was 20 years old or older was put to death in the desert, and only their children that were raised up were, were alive at this time, that means the, the oldest person you could have other than Joshua and Caleb would have been 19 38 years earlier. So you add the 38 years to the 19. We have an army that is between 20 years old and 57 years old. Every man between 27 and 57 is now not going to be able to fight for three days. Does that sound like a good plan to you? No. I, I got to tell you, you know, if you're training for a heavyweight bout or something, I wouldn't think that on fight night we would uh, have a surgery like this, yeah. you know? It's really interesting that God consistently does this kind of thing. I want to give you the testimony of Scripture here for just a minute. This will be a list of seven things that clue you in to God likes the impossible. Yes. Is, that, is that okay? Yes. All right, this is kind of a preachable moment, but I'm not. I'm going to uh, just give you the list. Mandy, you, uh, you take 2 Kings 6.6. 6. Mm -hmm. Jasmine, you take 1 Kings 17.1. I remembered that. Somebody told me earlier it helped me. <laughs> uh, Christy, you take Judges 11.1. 11.1. Patricia, you'll need to, uh, to read Matthew 1.5 and also it, Matthew 1.5. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just take that. Susan, uh, you take Mark 6.41. Uh, Joellen, you take Matthew 23.11-12. Charlie, you take Matthew 16.25. And axe head flew off of a guy's borrowed tool. It goes into the water. Elijah prays and makes the iron float. With God, is anything possible? Have you ever seen iron float? No. You have to make it into a naval ship, huh? And then it's not iron. How about 1 Kings 17.1? Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. The hydrometeorological cycle will obey a man's voice. Yes. Does God like the impossible? Yes. Does he have a, a pension for uh, unusual, unorthodox plans? Okay, Judges 11.1. 1. Judges 11.1. 1. Jephthah the Gilead, Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, and his mother was a prostitute. Who takes a prostitute's son and makes him a king? God does. Man, that's got to be good news. I mean, 
You're not condemned to your family line. How, how about Matthew 1.5? Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David the king. The sons of prostitutes can become kings and prostitutes can be in the line of Jesus Christ. How cool is that? How about Mark 6.41? loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven he gave thanks and broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples set before the people he also divided the two fish among them all five loaves two fish five's the number of grace in the bible right two's the number of when you have a grace covenant there's more than enough for everybody here we see five loaves and two fish feed thousands of people does that math work for anyone What happens when you pick up 12 basketfuls, which is the number of God's government, 12 basketfuls left over? How do you have more left over than you started with? Because God loves the impossible. See, none of us would decide, you know what, we're facing a walled city that's had 400 years to prepare for our arrival. I know what we'll do. We'll disable every fighting man between the age of 20 and 57. But God did. And He did because He doesn't need your strength, your talent, your self-sufficiency. He needs you to depend upon Him. Matthew 23, 11 through 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Who in the world chooses the lowest that there are and raises them to the highest positions? I mean... In American politics, you have to wonder whether that's happening sometimes. But that's a different story. Here, we see that God's kingdom dynamic is based upon servants becoming kings. Is that counterintuitive? Yes. I would say so. How about Matthew 16, 25? Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Only in the Bible is losing your life finding life. See, this shouldn't surprise us that God, the great military strategist, doesn't need the men to be in top fighting shape to win. After all, he's not revealed his plan yet, but his plan involves walking off their injury. (laughs) Oh, are you guys still sore? For the first seven days, all you got to do is walk around the city, then you'll get to run. You know, I mean... uh, It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, how might that apply to your situation? Let let me ask you. Are you in a hole that God can't get you out of? Let's be honest. He could purposely disadvantage you just so that you knew that you needed Him. He's that kind of God. Maybe maybe you were basking in your own awesomeness just a little too much, and and He wanted you to have to lean on Him. That's, That's not a bad thing, friends. That's a good thing. That, that means that you know of your need. The man who trusts him, everything is possible. I want to talk to you about the mind of Christ. Here's a seven scripture string. Starting in the back of the room. Elder Bosch, take Genesis 26, 7. Cody, take Isaiah 55, 9. Caleb, 1 Chronicles 28, 9. Uh, Susie, take Acts 8, 20 through 23. Uh, Jackie, do you mind taking 
Revelation 3.18. Chris, take 1 Corinthians 2.14-16. Jenny, take uh, Romans 8.6-8. Seven scriptures on why you need the mind of Christ. Genesis 26, 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. And he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, because she is beautiful. All right. So the natural mind can come up with. What seemed like a good idea at the time, but in retrospect's pretty ridiculous, right? Your wife's hot, so you pretend she's your sister, and this seems like a good plan. This seems like a good plan to do, and, and we make the same mistake in two consecutive generations. What happens if when you face threat, instead of trying to worm around in your natural mind, you thought, wow, I'm going to have to depend upon the Lord. Wouldn't that be a much better plan? It's easy to laugh at what Abraham did, but if we audit your taxes for the last ten years, what would we find? Okay, how about Isaiah 55, 9? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, our king understands things that we don't. It's a... It's like the air traffic controller arguing with the pilot and the pilot with the air traffic controller, you know? The poor pilots, what about the trees? What about the trees? Of course, the air traffic controller's got a completely different perspective. He can see everything, right? So how about you listen to my instructions and let me worry about the obstructions? Maybe, maybe we're worried about things that we shouldn't be. Maybe the obstructions are not our real problem. Maybe our only real problem is listening to God's instruction. See, Romans 8.14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God are His sons. How led by His Spirit are you actually? Because agreeing to 14 points of doctrine doesn't have anything to do with being led by the Spirit. Uh, Shaking your head yes when somebody prays a sinner's prayer, that's got nothing to do with being led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit is purposely disadvantaging yourself when you're facing warfare because you believe the Spirit said to do it. So when's the last time the Spirit led you to do something that seemed counterintuitive? That might be a way to know that you're not being led by your flesh. Okay, First Chronicles 28.9. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him... He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. The truth is, the Lord knows even the motives behind your thoughts. He doesn't just know what you're thinking. He knows why you're thinking what you're thinking. Can I tell you, I don't know that most of the time. You know, most of the time, we practice self-deception pretty darn well. We have a God who knows all of the obstructions, and is giving you proper instruction, and all you really have to do is exactly what he says. Life becomes so much more simple like that. It's like returning to the garden, right? Just trusting God to tell you what to do, and not taking that back into your own hands. Acts 8, 20 through 23. 
But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God gives him by can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you evil thoughts, for I can see that you are, are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Bad Simon the Sorcerer, right? Boo! Shame on Simon the Sorcerer. Awful Simon the Sorcerer. He'd make a great American pastor. He believed that he could buy his way into the things of God. He believed that it was okay to have jealousy and competition. Right? When I moved to this town, I called some local pastors just for fellowship's sake. You know what they said? We don't need any more churches in this area. There's no jealousy and competition in the church, is there? Right? I mean, this is a joke. This kind of carnal thinking was not put up with in the early church. Peter looked right at this guy, and he says, May your money perish with you. You have no part in this ministry. Pray and listen to this very carefully. Perhaps God will forgive you for having such a wicked thought in your heart. There was no assurance given to him. There was no encouragement given to him. It was pretty well, you cannot be in the kingdom and think like this. Right? How important is it that we depend on the mind of Christ? Revelation 3.18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may fold yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It turns out that we're not very good at knowing our own condition. So, like the church at Laodicea, when we feel strong and secure, we actually might be in a weak position. And like Joshua's armies, when we feel weak, we might be in the strongest position. Because who do you find out is standing in their camp at the end of this chapter? The commander of the army of the Lord. So they're not actually at risk, are they? They felt vulnerable, but were not actually at risk. And the church at Laodicea felt strong and was actually very vulnerable. See, we don't judge this very well. That's why we're going to have to trust Him. Amen? Amen. How about 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16? The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. The natural mind is not capable of understanding the Spirit. But the man who is led by the Spirit, the Spirit will show you what to do in every situation. You know, that is such a beautiful passage. Uh, Romans 8, 6-8. through 8. And that's straight to the point, isn't it? Do you want life and peace or do you want death? Life and peace. I want life and peace. And it turns out that sometimes to find life, you have to put yourself in the losing position. Is that incredible? See, this is as um, dependent on the miraculous as you could possibly be. When we're reading about this, this is a story. But in reality, it is several hundred thousand men like 603,000 men, right? We'll get to that later. Who are actually undergoing uh, 
a fairly compromising surgery, given that it's done with a flint knife. I mean... <laughs> right before battle! Who would think that's a good idea? But God does it. His, his word is full of this kind of thing. And when there's stories to you, they're beautiful. When you have to live them out, you may not feel that way. I'd like to walk you through a few just for fun. In Genesis 2.12, Abraham's told he'll become a great nation. In Genesis 15.3, God's plan involves enslaving the entire nation for 400 years. Who would think that's a good idea? How counterintuitive is that? Also in God's law, Genesis 21.12, Isaac is the one through whom your offspring are going to be reckoned. Genesis 22.2, hey, I want you to kill Isaac. How counterintuitive is that? Also in the law, Exodus 2.5-6, God saves Moses, the great deliverer. And then in Exodus 4.12, he waits until he has absolutely no political power. He's 80 years old to use him to do anything. How counterintuitive is that? It's almost like God wants to make sure you trust it. It doesn't stop there. The prophets are full of these stories. Maybe the best known is David with Goliath. But how about David just as a man? In 1 Samuel 16.1, Hey, go anoint a king over Israel to the prophet Samuel. In Samuel 16.10, You've already gone through all of these brothers. The one I want you to pick is the one that wasn't thought enough of to even be invited. How counterintuitive is that? In the writings, just to round out all the sections of the Bible, Esther 2, 5 through 7, you have a little uh, Jewish orphan named Hadassah, right? Um, I know what we'll do with her. We'll have her save her whole nation in Esther 5, 7 simply by throwing a dinner party. That sounds like a good plan. That sounds about like circumcising an army before battle. It makes no sense. And yet God does it over and over and over. Do you think maybe He's trying to send you one resounding message that says, I'm trustworthy, but your feelings are not, your thoughts are not, your strength is not? Do you think maybe He's made a compelling case so that it's not actually blind faith, as people say? <coughs> You have every reason to trust Him. And no reason to trust in yourself. Amen. Yeah? Good word. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, read verse 7 for me. So He raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. He raised up their sons in their place. Could you turn on that screen for a second? We have covered these before, uh, and so I'm not going to cover them again, but I did write the scripture references out specifically, whereas I generalized them before. There were seven times in Israel's history that a census took place. In Exodus 38:26, at Israel's inception, they take a census and they count the people. The second census is in Numbers 1. Uh, beginning in the first few verses, but it's the whole chapter. And they want to know, how many fighting men are there before we go into Canaan? In Numbers 26, 2, 
38 years in the desert, and they're about to cross into um, to Canaan again uh, to have that chance. Uh, 38 years later, 40 years in the desert, and they need to re-ascertain the number of fighting men. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, David takes a census. In 2 Chronicles 2.17, Solomon takes a census. In Ezra 2, after the Babylonian captivity, there's a census. And the last census that will ever occur in the nation of Israel is forecasted in Matthew 25.32 when he gathers all of the nations and he separates the sheep and the goats. Now here's why we're mentioning census. If he raised up their sons in their place, the kind of God we serve, he has a message in this, I promise. You ready? So, let's do this. Um, Jennifer, you read Numbers 1 and verse 46, and Ibrahim, you read Numbers 26 and verse 51. Now, you might see on your screen I listed the entire scripture reference there. What they're doing is reading the summaries. He literally goes uh, clan by clan and tribe by tribe and numbers them in both chapters. Numbers 146. The total number was 603,550. They counted every single Israelite man who was 20 years old or older, military age, at the beginning of the um, first military campaign, uh, when they would not go in the land, and they found 603,000 and some odd. How about in Numbers 26, verse 51? The total number of the men of Israel was 601,730. There are less men the second time they get to the promised land. You know what is cool? You can actually do the math. There's 603,550 when they get to the promised land in year two. They will not go in. And they won't go in because those guys in there are bigger and taller than us and our children will be enslaved. So they come there 38 years later and there's only 601,730. That's one that's 1,820 fewer fighting men in the second generation, and they did go in. They went in less equipped with less men. Have you ever wondered what happens if you don't do the will of God? Well, he'll raise up somebody else to do it. So what, well, no problem, God's will gets done. No, it's harder because you were designed to do it. These poor, poor kids that they were worried about, did they actually protect their children? No, they put them in a worse situation. Oh, listen to me. Those of you who are parents in here, you think that you're protecting your children by not doing the difficult? I mean, that's just too hard. I don't know if they can handle that. I, we, we need to, they need to go to prom. They, they need to play baseball. They need to do these things. I mean, they need a life. We don't want them to resent Christianity. You're actually digging them a hole. You just don't know it. Wow, it's awful quiet. You're digging them a hole and you don't know it. You think that you are providing for them. And what you're actually doing is disadvantaging them. Mm -hmm. Trust the Lord instead of your flesh. Man, could we say that any clearer? 
Every mother lives with the fear that your children are missing out on something. If they're in the will of God, they're missing out on nothing. If they're not in the will of God, you are digging a hole they may not be able to climb out of. Let's do this. Let's read Deuteronomy 20. Mandy, you read this one. Deuteronomy 20, 1 through 9. We're going to get into some things that are so neat. I know y'all already have done all of that math. When you go to war against your enemies, see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Mandy, what is the army? How is it described? Greater than yours. Do you mean that God always puts you in situations where you're outmanned? There is no battle that he leads you into that you don't have to trust him to win. So how are you picking your battles? Pastor Sutherland visited our church many years ago. He's always been connected to us long before they were actually here. And he took out back, I mean, this was back in the day. That pastor's very old. This is uh, like dinosaur times. He took out the Franklin Covey Planner. Right? With the insert pages and all of those things that responsible men had back then. He opened it and he said... What's in your planner? Like, so, no, why? Because if what's listed in your planner is within your ability to do, you've reasoned God out of your life. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> we'll see you next year, Pastor Sutherland. <laughs> Actually, we knew that he was, he was destined to be here and he'd be a better pastor than we were. The... the the point here is you cannot make your decisions based on your capabilities or you have reasoned God right out of your life. You have to make your decisions based on what God's word says. Amen? Amen. Keep going, Mandy. You see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours. Do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priests shall come forward and address the army. He shall say... Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officers shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle, and someone else marry her. All right, we just have to pause in the middle of this for a minute. We are literally going to stand up and find an army and go, if there's any reason you can think of to not want to be here, go home. Sancho's going to get your girl. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh, y'all are Louisiana. Wow. Jody's gonna get your girl. <laughs> are you kidding me? Why could you set down for all time, for a nation's history, such an extraordinary easy out as you got a house? Oh, you could go home. You you want to marry somebody? You could go home. Why, why can you do this? Because God doesn't want a single soldier on the field that doesn't want to be there. Amen. He doesn't want a single person 
that has another priority other than what God has said must be done. Because to have more people that have divided loyalties is actually less effective than have far fewer people with only one loyalty. Now, mega church, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I hear all of the time how small our church is. Really? I feel a little bit like that movie 300. I think I brought more warriors to the Now, I'm not as concerned with somebody in other churches. That makes no difference. There are people here tonight from all over Houston, and I'm thrilled to have you. I'm more concerned with God having all of your attention. Because he either has it all, or you are compromised and should go home. That's, that really is the gospel is an all or nothing gospel. Amen. But when you have on the field, no matter what the number is or the disadvantage, the totally sold out, listen to what you do. Then the officers shall add, is any man afraid or faint hearted to let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too? When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. You appoint commanders over armies that are willing. Armies that are not quaking in fear, but they're standing in trust. God brings leadership to those who want to be led. The rest, your curse, is the leaders you raised up for yourself. The ones that cater to your fears. The ones that encourage you to have divided loyalties as long as you put some holy hush money in the offering. Right? That's... That's about the landscape of things. But God will raise up actual leaders over those who want to go to war. I mean, he'll do that. And they're not always the kind that will coddle you and wrap you in pink little bows like a biblical confectionery of some kind. They're the kind that will kick you in the rear and consider it a step forward for mankind. Right? All right. Let's do this. I want to give you seven instances that you can look at in the Word that prove Deuteronomy 20 is true. Is that cool? I like lists of seven. Are y'all noticing that? All right. So let's, let's catch this row back here. And I'll need some help right in there. But we'll start over here, Curtis, and the rest will come to me. Uh... Numbers 13, 31 through 14, 8. Oh, look, this is staggeringly good. Let's just stop with that one and then we'll do the other. This is number one of seven. Numbers 13, 31, 14 through 8. But the men who have gone up. With them said, We can't attack the people, they are stronger than we are. And they spread up among them like a bad report about the land they had explored. And they said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw were of great size. We saw them the phylum there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We see Spencer's them. people. It's <laughs> <laughs> like grasshoppers in, their, in our own eyes, and we look for the same to them. 14 No, 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 my friend. So you're, you're, you're taking 13, verse 31, all the way through. 
to chapter 14 and verse 8. That night all the people, the Jews, your raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to be back in Egypt? And they said to each other, We should go, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who was among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Our wives and our children will be taken. You know why we can't go? We can't go in because it would be bad for our kids. It's not so much us we're concerned with. I mean, I'm willing to lose my life. But my children, we can't go, oh, Lord, the children. The children, Lord. We can't go because of the children. Let me ask you, who went in and beat those giants? The children. God took the babies and he raised them up and they became the conquerors. Oh, my goodness. This is the proof of all proof. God doesn't need your strength. They thought they were protecting their children, and really all they did was set them back 1,820 men in 38 years and give them a bigger hole to dig out of. The truth is those babies went in and got it done. You know, in every town, I'm just going to go ahead and take the staff. You ready? ready. Picking up your skin. Promise to love me anyway. In every town, there's churches with names like First, This, That, or The Other. Some towns might be second, this, that, or the other. And then there are the churches that are no longer welcome there because they had an experience that they say doesn't happen. And they've outgrown the others and done work all over the world. Every town has got this. You, at some point, have got to take your head out of the theological sand and say, maybe there's more. Maybe there's more than I'm being told about. Because the particular denomination that I come out of, if all of us were back in that denomination, there would be so many more of us that have been pushed out than were ever in it. It's incredible. The only reason this works is because we start with an equally naive youth every cycle. It's the only reason that it works. And those with blue hair have controlled and killed the churches. The gym services in the 90s all became more thriving churches somewhere else. I mean, it is incredible. If we wore the former denominational title today, if you could still keep it, even after they didn't think so, all three of these pastors grew up in a denominational church and would have fought to say, that's us, until we got baptized in the Holy Ghost and they said, you are not us. Well, I have news for you. There's far more of us that have got baptized in the Holy Ghost and are now not considered original than there are left in the original. Yeah. At true. some point, you need to wake up. You, you, you need to, to, to look around and go, why am I doing this? Oh, it's safety, it's security, yeah. it's acceptance. You might be digging a hole that your children cannot get out of. Wow. Yeah. You know what you need to do? Follow the Lord. All of us thought the same thing. 
God showed me this, and he's leaving me here to lead them to the truth. If they wanted it, <laughs> if they wanted it, they wouldn't have thrown out the thousands and thousands and thousands before you. Okay, okay. so there, if I hurt your feelings, I love you, and I'll pray for healing for you afterwards. <laughs> the first one was Numbers 13, where we see so clearly that the children they were worried about became the overcoming conquerors. Now let's do two through seven. So Mary, you take Exodus 14, 17 through 18. And Haley, you take Exodus 14, 28. That will be number two. Oh. You want to hand up the rest? Or? Doing great. Exodus 14, 17 through 18. So now may the Lord's power may, may the Lord's power be magnified just as you have spoken. The Lord is slow to anger and rich in faithful love, forgiving wrongdoing and rebellion. But he but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoings on the children of the on the children to the third and fourth generation. So I was looking for Exodus 14 in verse 17. It begins with the phrase, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. It's no problem, honey. You took Curtis off the single rolls. We're forever indebted. I'm going to have the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I'll receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his carrier, and his horsemen. God's going to receive glory through Pharaoh. How? By putting his people in the most disadvantaged position possible and winning anyway. It's a little bit like going, I'm going to tie both hands behind my back. And then I'm going to kick you so hard on that side of your face, you'll never get up again. You know, I mean, it's that embarrassingly bad. He doesn't even use swords and chariots and stuff to do it. Right? How about 1428? The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. In example one, the children go in and rid the uh, giants. In example two, God's word is true. Not one of Egypt's military might survive. Not one. You have a reason to trust God. Yes. yes. You know, it's incredible. We face it, and and uh, the hair stands up on our neck, and we, we feel sick in our stomach, and you're just worried, what if this one time he doesn't come through for you? And a lot of times the devil's so clever, you go, oh, no, I know God can do it. Then why are you worried if he will do it? You're so insecure about whether or not he loves you. And it's going to come through for you. Like maybe he'll maybe he'll do it for Justin, but but not not you. 
In fact, we get sick or something's wrong, we need to go find some great person. Mm. And by great, we mean they have to have a ridiculous haircut, fly around in a jet, wear a white suit. I mean some great person, like TBN Circus Ridiculous Great, mm. and have them pray for us. Why? Why would you even begin to consider that kind of foolishness? Either God is God to you, yeah. or He's not. Yeah. Wow. And if He is, why would you think some clown on TV stealing money from people had more pull with God than you do? Yeah. Mm. Isn't that your fear and insecurity warring against your faith? Mm. What? <clears throat> what if you just believe that you were His child and nothing could happen to you outside? of His will. And whatever came into your life was actually put there because in some way it would ultimately benefit you and trust your Father. Oh, that's a good word. I mean, wow. Um, okay, help me with names here. Morgan. Morgan and Leah. Megan? Leah. Leah. Megan's back here. So wave. <laughs> wave, Megan. Well, that's why I can't see. So we got Morgan and Leah. Okay. Morgan, take Judges 7-2. Leah, Judges 7-12. Okay. Did you say it? 7-2, 7-2. She's got a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> 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 7-2 and 7-12. I'll, I'll put the list on the screen. Just not not make it. Seven, two, Just two. two. Okay. Judges 7 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, for Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Who thinks like that? You're going to war? No, you got too many people. The God who wrote Deuteronomy twenty, he wanted you to be outnumbered. He was not at all concerned that there wouldn't be enough strength to get it done. Mm -hmm. He was more concerned that if some of your strength was involved, you would think that it was you. In other words, the biggest threat to you is you, not the obstacles that are around you. All right, what was our next judges? 712? How counterintuitive is God? They have so many that they're like sand on the seashore, but you've got too many. Let's whittle it down to, I don't know, 300? Mm -hmm. 300 against the sand on the seashore. Why did God put real people into those real situations if it was not to encourage you that in your lesser situation He's more than able to deliver you? Amen. What reason has he ever given us to doubt him? I mean, it, it's simply not, so you've got a financial problem. Like what kind? Like 300 problem or like sand on seashore problem? Because it's not a problem for him. And if you have a problem that you think is, if money is your problem, can I tell you you don't have a problem? You need to get filled with the Holy Ghost. That's what you need. 
Hallelujah. That, that's that's your problem. problem right there. Okay. Let's do this. Buddy, you take 1 Kings 20, 10. And Kim, you take 1 Kings 20, 27 through 29. This is item four. First Kings 20, verse 10. Then Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad sent another <laughs> message to Ahab. May the gods deal with me, but it ever so severely, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. Ben-Hadad's pretty confident, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's not going to be enough of you guys left to even mount to a handful of dust. Okay, Kim? When the Israelites were all mustered and given provision, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats while the Armenians covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says, because the Armenians think the Lord is a God of the hills and not the God of the valleys. I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. Now, I could preach about this all day, and we don't have time because there's some seriously good things to get to. But have you ever been in a situation and you're like, I know God can do it. That, that's not in question. But the thing is, is, you know, last week I wasn't kind of totally, uh, I may have sort of kind of possibly made a mistake. And now I'm not sure that he's for me. Okay, y'all never been in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor, sometimes when the planets all line up and the wind's not blowing the right way and my sweater was snagged, I and mean, that was really good. Sometimes I do things I shouldn't do. Oh, really? You're the one. <laughs> I, uh, I picked this one because there's nobody in the story except the unnamed man of God who's a good guy. Ahab's a toad. I mean, like if he was on fire, I would walk the other direction. I mean, he not a good man. Not at all. Ben-Hadad, an enemy of God. God set up this situation. Did you hear what he said? Because Ben-Hadad's armies think I'm a god of the hills. I'm going to do this for me. You just need to make sure you're on God's side. You, you don't always have to worry if God's on your side. Wow. You need to worry if you're on his side. Yeah. See, you can follow that all the way down to the end of the chapter. Because I, I got it. Sometimes <laughs> you've done some things that give you a reason to not be totally confident. Okay, well, you're the only one. But since it was you, let's talk about that. Make sure that you're on God's side of the battle and you won't have a problem. Amen. Then study his character and find out he's loving and forgiving. He'll train you and help you. And if he wanted to kill you, you'd already be dead. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that, 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 that's, that's better than y'all reacting like it. Okay, uh, let's turn on the screen. I want to give you the others because I, I need to get to some stuff that uh, is good. So that was uh, one through four. Number five is Second Chronicles 20.12 and then Second Chronicles twenty. In verse 3, what you find out is that uh, Jehoshaphat stands with all of his little ones. And he stands in the presence of God, powerless. Uh, and he asks God to help him, the powerless, against the mighty. 
And uh, that's Ammon and Moab. And you know what? God comes through for him. You find out with Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32, 8-10, and 2 Chronicles 32, 21, that Sennacherib outnumbers Hezekiah, has beaten all of the other kings like Hezekiah. He literally tells Hezekiah, you're going to drink your own urine and eat your own filth. And the Hebrew does not say filth. And God gets offended at Sennacherib, and he sends the angel to come and annihilate Sennacherib's armies. The reason that I put these here, uh, Matthew, you go to Psalm 44. The reason that I put these here is to remind you of something. God likes the underdog. God likes the impossible situation. God moves in a counterintuitive fashion to your flesh because He didn't want you to be ruled by your flesh or by your intellect. He wanted you to know His Word in your spirit, trust Him spiritually, bring your mind, will, and emotions into what your spirit knows is true, and force your flesh to do His will. That would prove that you actually belong to Him. 44, 3 and 6 through 7. Listen to Psalm 44. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did they their arm bring their victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them. There is no battle that is won by the size of the king's army. Your finances don't rescue you. Your health insurance don't rescue you. Your politicians don't rescue you. You stand or fall by your trust in the Lord. And if a man seems to be standing, but he doesn't trust in the Lord, he's already fallen. You just can't see it. And if a man seems to be fallen, but he's trusting in the Lord, don't gloat over him, enemy. He will rise. At the end of all things, the wicked are going to be mowed down like grass. What's verse 6 and 7? I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. All of this is in reference to something. It's in reference to the first seven verses of chapter 5 in Joshua. And we're not through with those seven. Because it gets even better. The point is God disadvantages them for a reason. He wants to see whether they'll continue to trust Him. And when they do, it rolls away their reproach. And we're, we're going to get there because I want that to happen for you. How many of you remember this? In John 1.28. Uh, Susan, read John 1.28. This was from uh, we, uh, chapter th- 3. Yeah, chapter 3. Uh, in our teaching on chapter 3. Okay, John one twenty-eight. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptized. The two most ancient codex that we read from that are reliable are the NA27 and the Textus Receptus. And there is a disagreement about the name here. We covered this in chapter 3 and I don't have time to cover it in full here. I think we resolved the Bible difficulty. There's more than one Bethany in the Bible, and the second Bethany was also called Bethabara, which means house of the crossing. John the baptizer was in a very specific spot baptizing people, and there's a reason for that. We learned in chapter 3 that the very place that John the Baptist was baptizing people is the place where Joshua took the people across the Jordan. And that brought into to mind all kind of parallels between Joshua and Jesus. Joshua came out of the desert and went into the promised land at Bethbara. Jesus got baptized in the promised land 
and at Bethboro went into the desert. <laughs> you know, they, there were seven parallels there that we won't teach on tonight. Having said that, watch what this does. If you recognize that the place of crossing is Bethbara, now let's pick up from Joshua 4. Uh, Peyton, read Joshua 4, 4 through 7. Joy, you read Matthew 3, 7 through 9. And Alicia, you read Luke 3, 3 through 8. Joshua 4, 4 through 7. Hey, look at your neighbor says it's about to get good in here. This not where you want to fall asleep. This is the this 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 is about to get deep. So Joshua called together the twelve men he appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulders, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that, they flow of the, that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When, uh, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. The stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Don't call the ark police. <laughs> Joshua is crossing the river. This is the Jordan. Jericho's over here. The place he's crossing is called Beth Barah. We learned in chapter 4, there were two stone altars. The river was at flood stage. So, uh, one altar... Uh, would would be when the river receded uh, right in the middle and the other would be opposite the side of Jericho. These stone altars were based on the 12 tribes of Israel, had names inscribed on them and were put there so that when the children asked, you could teach, right? That's why they were put there. Do y'all remember this from Joshua? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's read our next passage. Coming to what? Where was John the Baptist baptizing? He's at Bethbara. John the Baptist, according to John 1.28, I prefer John the Baptizer for obvious reasons, but uh, John is right here. Okay? This is where he's baptizing. And he sees leaders coming. Keep going. Wait, what? Out of these stones. Do you mean that there's baptizing going on right here where there are stone monuments to what God has done? And then unbelieving leaders have shown up and John looks at them and goes, you brood of vipers, God will raise up from these stones children of Abraham. In the very place where he has already raised up children that replace their faithful leaders. Wow. Oh, come on now. Yeah. Now, 
1,820 fewer faithful children than there were faithless leaders. Also, in the first century, there were fewer faithful children, Jewish nation, than there were their faithless leaders. But that didn't stop God's plan. Hear it again in Luke. He went into all the country, uh, country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall be straight, the rough ways smooth, and all and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Um, I don't want to camp on it too long, but it's worth camping on just a little bit here. In Hebrew, this is recorded in Greek, but in Hebrew, stone and son sound very much alike. He can raise up sons from these stones. Standing in the place where sons set up these stones as a sign that they had replaced their fathers. That's incredible. Was that a teaching lesson? Yeah. And what was the issue? You first have to produce fruit in keeping with repentance before God will accept you. What is the chief issue of our time in the churches? You don't have to prove that you have repented. Nothing has to be different in your actions. Nothing about it. In fact, if you just show up to church twice in a month, we'll, we'll take that as long as you give us some... Holy Hushman. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. That way we can put a Starbucks, we can uh, have a children's playland, and also uh, a child's facility. The children's playland is actually the sanctuary where the adults are. <laughs> and the whole point here is we require nothing of you. You come and consume. And we will provide for you a parking lot to parking lot experience like Disneyland. What the gospel actually says is you'll be disadvantaged in every way. You'll have to carry a cross. But if you stand by him in his trials, he will confer upon you a kingdom that will never be shaken. See, that's not being preached. Even when it's said, it's not actually being preached. The religious leaders have always missed it. They missed it in Jesus' day. They're missing it today. And this is why the greatest revivals in histories did not come from the pastor. I do not want to be a stone that he rejected. Do you know what kind of stone I want to be? How about that? What if these stones are the very memorials of his miraculous crossing, reminding the leaders that an unfaithful generation had always already been supplanted by a faithful one? One who was willing to trust God in the face of their obstacles. Let's do a six scripture string. Amen? Mm-hmm. Amen. Seven? Six? It's 
Well, you can include this and it makes it seven. <laughs> Sorry. Gabriel! Are you winking at me? <laughs> He's got a little eye problem. I'm picking on him. <laughs> uh, Exodus 28, 21. Kylie. 1 Kings 18, 30 through 32. Libby. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3. Abriana, Matthew 3, 9. Brenton, Revelation 2, 17. Olivia, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Are you all bored? Are you doing all right? Because I do want to finish the chapter. And you, it, I can't tell you what happens with the uh, dates in this chapter. It's, it's crazy. And I know everybody wants to find out who this guy is at the end of the chapter. Yeah. That's why it's at the end. <laughs> Somebody else has to draw on the board from now on. <laughs> Whenever you got it, Gabe. The high priest wore a, a chest piece that had stones that had the tribes engraved on. I want to be a stone on the chest of Christ. I, I want to be a continual reminder of the goodness of God. Okay, go ahead the next one. much as I'm thinking on the state of the church, I obviously want to fix it. That's why I spent 20 years in ministry and dedicated my entire life to it. That's why we go around the world doing this. We want to be stones that are repairing altars. Sometimes to do that, they need to know that they need to be repaired. The reason we had a reformation at one point in history is because the church was in such bad shape that it couldn't hide it anymore. I think we're in the same shape again. Okay. Uh, who had her next one? Nehemiah 4, 1-3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He, he ridiculed the Jews, and in, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonites, who was at his side, said, What what they are building, if if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stone. Can anybody tell me where Sam Ballot and Tobiah are today? Mm-hmm. In hell. But we know exactly where Nehemiah and Ezra's wall and temple are today. You know why? Because the answer to the question was, yes, these stones can come to life again. Look, if you're sitting in this room tonight and your heart is cut, if you're pricked in the heart at the way that you have lived 
at what you've participated in, it's not too late. All of us come from somewhere. It's not too late. The man who is still breathing has got time to repent to change. The thief on the cross so proves that. But I've got to tell you, there's no wickedness in the world like religious wickedness. Because it claims to be right with God all the way to hell. This is why whores and tax collectors come into the kingdom a long time before the, the clergy do. I mean, history has proven this time and time again. And all you have to do is avail yourself of a decent history book and you'll figure it out. <laughs> okay, who had the next one? Matthew 3, 9. And do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Why did Jesus say it? Because it was true then. It had been true in previous centuries. And it's true today. God will take the stone the builders rejected. Mm. And he will make it a capstone, just like mm. Psalm 118 and Matthew 21 say. David was a stone that the builders rejected, and God made him the king of the world. Uh, Jesus was a stone that the builders rejected, and he's the king of creation. You can be rejected by everyone. And if you trust the Lord, he can make you a capstone. Mm. That's incredible. Who had the next one? I do. Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Maybe you messed up your stone. He can make it white again and give you a new name. A name in the Bible has to do with your character, your body of work, your authority, your reputation. Maybe your reputation is not what you want it to be. Maybe you've been on the right road, headed the wrong direction. God can change that. All you have to do is trust Him. But it's going to take courage. Amen. All of us face the situation where you had to go, could this many people really be wrong? Yep. Mm. The majority usually is. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you have to dare to trust the Lord. Yeah. And if you can't dare to trust the Lord, you'll never do much of anything. Mm. You, you, you'll be in the same place 30 years from now that you are today. And history's littered with them. The church world's littered with them too. The potential everywhere, but just couldn't get outside what they thought was the safe norm. They won't go in and take the land. They won't do anything. They're going to stay in the blatantly well-known. And the truth is, it's actually a deficit in digging a hole. Okay, uh, how about 1 Peter 2? 1 Peter 2, 4-6. To him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Okay. Uh, the spiritual house is built with spiritual stones. Okay? You, you, uh, you want to be in Christ. You want to be a memorial. Uh, you have to worship Him in spirit. You have to be uh, led by His spirit. Your spirit must rule your life. Uh, it's a spiritual house. Okay, I put this on the screen for you for circumcise your hearts. This entire nation circumcised themselves this day. Okay, That's not such an easy task. I want to tell you about this rather quickly. Something that you... Um, may not have known. Noah. Noah was given a sign by God in Genesis 9. 
Do you remember what the sign was that there was a covenant with Noah? A rainbow. rainbow. Noah's sign was in the sky. It indicated that that covenant was with Noah and it was with all of creation, right? Because any time it rained, now you could see light refracting through it and there'd be a rainbow. I'm never going to flood the earth again. Uh, The Davidic covenant, the sign was the sun, the moon, and the stars. There usually were heavenly signs. Do you know what the sign of the covenant was with Abraham? It was in his flesh. There's a reason for that. The people themselves are the sign. Okay? It can't be another people. It never will be another people. The Israelite people are wearing in their flesh the sign that God made a covenant with them and with no one else. It was a mystery that we could be grafted into their covenant. Okay? Now... Some of you will get that on a level, others don't. And I get that. If you're in the Acts 2 class, you ought to be snapping to what that means. So the whole nation, when they're walking into the promised land, they're going to wear the sign in their flesh because God didn't give it to the Mormons. He didn't give it to the Muslims. He didn't give it to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And there is no such thing as a Gentile that becomes a Jew because he loves Jesus. You do not transform The covenant is with them in their flesh, and you have become a participator even though you are a foreigner and an alien. I don't have time to teach that, but I wanted you to see it. Now, y'all ready to get something very good? Yes. The circumcise your heart passages here are a reminder that this outward sign was about an inward change, just like baptism, but I don't have time to go over it. Check this out. You've seen this before? Okay. Three days and three nights. Let me put this on the board, not teaching about Jesus three days and three nights. Let's just go Nisan or Abib, same month. 10, 11, 12, 13, and then it picks up here with 14, right? Yes. 14 is Wednesday. On the 10th of Nisan, Israel crossed the Jordan. Somebody read Joshua 4.19. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. On the 10th day of the first month. So at the time of triumphal entry, the transition between the 10th and and the 11th, They're crossing the Jordan. This is when Jesus is walking in to Jerusalem. Okay? Now, uh, catch Joshua 5, 8 through 10. Who's going to read it? And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated Passover. Here they crossed. Same day that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Here, the reproach is rolled away at their circumcision. Which is, of course, the day that Jesus was crucified. 
Okay, it gets better. We go 15th. Is that on the screen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's up on the screen. So now, if we keep rolling forward, the 15th is a special Sabbath. Somebody read uh, Leviticus 23.7. Who's going to read it? Uh, on the first day, you shall present an offer. On the first day, you shall have holy have a holy convocation. 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 You shall not do any laborious work. Okay. So laborious work. Laborious work. Right here, when you're looking at this, Jesus was killed on a Wednesday. I know everybody says Friday. They're wrong. Uh, he, <laughs> um, this is Amen. the day that the 14th of the month is the day that Israel was uh, circumcised at Gilgal. The 15th is a day that is a high Sabbath day because Leviticus 23 7 says the first day of unleavened bread, you can't do any work. So when we're reading this, it's important for you to know something. Since, since Thursday night, I'm sorry, I'm. I'm caught between the board and the TV. Since the night of the 14th begins Passover at at twilight, Passover and unleavened bread are referred to as the 15th. The 15th is the first day of unleavened bread, but it's still also called Passover. You can see that in the Gospels. So what this does for us is you see that they crossed on the 10th. You see that they were circumcised and the reproach of Egypt was rolled away on the 14th. That mirrors the cross exactly. And now you see um, in Joshua 5.11, read that. The day after Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The day after Passover is not, in this case, the 15th, it's the 16th. Because Thursday is referred to as unleavened bread or Passover. So on the 16th, which would correspond to Friday, they're eating some of the produce of the land. Read your next verse. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from uh, the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. On the 17th of Nisan, the manna stopped falling. What you see is that the week of Jesus' crucifixion, the triumphal entry was the day they crossed the Jordan. The day he was crucified is the day they were circumcised at Gilgal. And Saturday evening, when he rose from the grave so that Sunday morning before light, he was not there, is the day that manna stopped falling from the sky. Do you know why? Because he is the true bread from heaven and he's now proven. It's better than that. There, there's, there's something else. To, yeah, I got chills. There's something else really cool here. The seventeenth of manna. The seventeenth is when the manna stopped. That is the third day. This is also the day that they would have been healed from their circumcision. It's three days since they've been circumcised. So they're healed on the day that Jesus rose. The manna stops on the day that Jesus rose because he's proven to be the manna. And then there's one more great one. When you do the mathematics for this, and I've done it for this group many times, you find out that the 17th day of the month that the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat is the same day. Now, it says it's the first month in Genesis, but there's a change in the calendar in Exodus 12, and the first month and the seventh month switch places. So, listen, 
This means that the world was saved on the 17th of Nisan and Noah's day. It means that the children of Israel were fully in the promised land on the 17th day of the month, the reproach of Egypt gone, no longer needing manna from heaven that had the produce of the land. It means that the risen Christ was on the 17th of Nisan. God is a God of order and beauty. Now, if you didn't catch all of that, I can show it to you again right after this. I I understand that it's a lot. Uh, I love it. Let's read uh, 13 through 15 real quick. Now, Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Okay, now we got to get this for just a second. Whatever you think about this guy, how awesome is he if he's the commander of the Lord's army? Pretty awesome. Most of the time when people see angels in the Bible, they're quaking with fear. Most of the time they're fainting. Joshua's response is the response of a sentinel on guard. He's out. I have no idea why. Probably seeking the Lord. He looks up and he sees somebody who is the commander of the Lord's army, but he doesn't know who he is. And listen, we we have no description of what's happening. You have to infer it. And you have to picture Joshua's hand go to a sword. (laughs) You for us are our enemies. (laughs) Talk about the bravery of Joshua. (laughs) At this point, there's no way that Joshua's not at least 80 years old. Wow. I mean, <laughs> Joshua's getting up there, wow. okay? I, I haven't done the math today on his age, but I have before. We're in the right ballpark. I want to read you something as we bring uh, the commander of the army of the Lord to bear, okay? Is that all right? Yeah. Oh, you can go ahead and kill that for a second, Matt. This is called Chocolate Soldier. It was written by a missionary, <laughs> C.T. Studd, and I love the guy. Heroism is the lost chord, the missing note of present-day Christianity. Every true soldier is a hero. Every soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier. One who has not been stirred to scorn and mirth at the very thought of a chocolate soldier. In peace, true soldiers are captive lions fretting in their cages. War gives them their liberty and sends them out like boys bounding out of school to obtain their heart's desire or perish in the attempt. Battle is the soldier's vital breath. Peace turns him into a stooping asthmatic. War makes him a whole man again and gives him his heart and strength and the vigor of a hero. Every true Christian is a soldier of Christ, a hero par excellence, braver than the bravest, scorning the soft seductions of peace and her oft-repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among his best friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian. Dissolving in water and melting at the smell of fire. Sweeties they are. Bonbons. Lollipops. Living their lives on a glass dish or in a cardboard box. Each clad with its soft clothing. A little frilled white paper to preserve his dear, delicate, fragile constitution. To the chocolate Christian, the very thought of war brings a violent attack of illness. While the call to battle always finds him with palsy. I really can't move, he says. I only wish I could, but... God never was a chocolate manufacturer, and he never will be. God's men are always heroes. In Scripture, you can trace their giant foot tracks down the sands of time. Joshua had the heart of a hero. 
He's alone in the middle of nowhere with a heavenly figure standing in front of him. And he says, are you for us or for our enemies? Everybody reads this like, are you for us or our enemies? Oh, don't you believe it? The truth is, is you find out in Daniel 10 that sometimes angels are not doing God's will. And this might not have been his first encounter with one. But he felt more than enough to take it on if he had to. And seemed completely relieved when he found out this one was God's. Right? You don't understand that. Find somebody in Acts 2 who went through the five-hour demonology and angels course and you'll, uh, you'll be blessed by it. While well, we're talking about who the commander of the army of the Lord is, you're going to find commentator after commentator says, oh, this is Jesus. Um, I'm going to deal with that. I want to give you seven quick scriptures and then a list of 16 scriptures that will help you. You ready? The seven quick scriptures, starting with Cody in the back of the room, John 1.18, Baj, John 6.46, Susie, Colossians 1.15, Caleb, 1 Timothy 1.17, Chris, 1 Timothy 6.16, Jenny, Hebrews 11.27, Joyce, 1 John 4.12. You can put these on the screen now, that way if anybody's missing them. Let's read these. You're going to be a little surprised. I've been teaching this part for like 17 years and I've never met a crowd that liked it. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Did you hear that no one has ever seen God? Yeah. Now in your mind you'll start going, but what about, but what about, but what about? We're going to find seven places in the Newer Testament that say you cannot see God. And every but what about, you're going to find out is an angel. A hundred percent of the time. Because God cannot be seen. Let's take John 6, 46. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. No one has seen the Father except Jesus who is from the Father. No one. Say no one. No one. Colossians 1, 15. He is the visible image of the invisible God. God is invisible. If you have pictured him looking very much like Bosch, with an excellent gray beard, seated on a throne, you have pictured him in a pagan sense. The pagans believed that Zeus had a gray beard and sat on a throne. And so when the Greeks took over the church... They had the father with a gray beard on a throne with a staff and then the son. This is heresy. God cannot be seen. And that would make three gods, by the way. And there is but one God. Okay? Uh, One God with three parts. God said, (laughs) let us make man in our own image and then he made one man. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.17 
To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Immortal and invisible. First Timothy 6.16. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable life, whom no one has seen or can see. Do you hear that? No one has seen or can see. There is never a time, ever, that you will see God. Not in ages to come, not ever. Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. He is who you see. You do not ever see the Father. Uh, Hebrews eleven twenty seven. How do you see one who's invisible? He understood him. He comprehended. He was as real to him as if he was standing there. But no one has ever seen God or can see God. 1 John 4.12 No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God gives, God lives in us and his love is made complete. This is among the last letters in the New Testament. It says no one has ever seen God. So what about Moses in the burning bush? What about every time that it looks like we've seen God? We're going to answer that, but before we do, let's read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Somebody? Come on, somebody. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Son of the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Catch this. In the past, he spoke in various ways. Now, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the exact representation of his being. What I'm going to lay out for you, and I'll put it on screen so you can read it, you can do those things. God can't be seen. So people go, well, maybe this was Jesus in some kind of pre-incarnate fashion. My favorite authors, my favorite scholars, my favorite commentators all say that, and they're all equally foolish in that kind of prevailing stupidity. Do you know why? Hebrew says in the past... He spoke in various ways. Now, something is different. Now, for the first time in history, He's speaking to us by His Son. Jesus never incarnated before He incarnated. Okay? He came in the flesh through Mary. He did not appear in the flesh at any other time. If you accept that He did, if you get twisted into what's called a uh, Christophany, you have lessened the incarnation that came through Mary. Jesus came many times. No, He didn't. He came once. The reason this is important to me is because that misunderstanding has led to lots of problems. I want to show you how you can understand this passage. You ready? The angel of the Lord in the Older Testament could be called the angel of theophany or the angel of God's appearance. Um... The scriptures that are on the left here are just a handful of scriptures where he is mentioned. Let's read a few. Cass, you take Genesis 16, 7. Matt, Genesis 22, 11. Wade, uh, Isaiah 63, 9. Buddy, Judges 2, 1 through 5. 
Kim, Judges 6, 11 through 14. What you're going to find out with the angel of the Lord, there's many more references to him than this, is he is actually an angel, but he represents God's presence or God's face. And so he is treated different than every other angel in the Bible. When you are reading Exodus 3 and you believe God is in the burning bush, how many of you, that's such an easy assumption to make. Because God is speaking from the burning bush. In Acts 7, Stephen says that was an angel in the burning bush. God cannot be seen. So when he wants to make his will known, he has an angel that represents him. And I'm going to show you that. Genesis 16, 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that was beside the road to Shur. Keep going. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Do angels increase people's descendants or does God do it? But do you hear how he switches to I? He is speaking as if he were God because he represents God. Do you you follow me here? The angel of the Lord is different than every other angel. Twice in the book of Revelation, uh, John tries to worship an angel. And the angel says, no, no, I'm a servant like you. The book of Hebrews says angels are ministering servants sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. This angel is different. This angel represents God and so... Shoes get taken off. You're allowed to bow before him because it's understood you're not bowing to the angel, but the one for whom he represents. Okay? Uh, Genesis 22:11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Keep going. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You keep reading this in context, and this angel speaks for God as God. Okay? Uh, Isaiah 63, 9. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. You find out as you read these passages, um, especially as you get to Exodus 32, 34, Exodus chapter 32, verse 34 through Exodus 33, 17. There's this whole dialogue between God and Moses. And, hey, I'm going to send my angel with you. If you don't go, then I don't want to go, Lord. Very well, I will go. My angel is with you. He, uh, he, he will not forgive you. He, he will not uh, permit you to rebel. The angel represents God's presence. Uh, who had that next one? Uh, Judges 2, 1 through 5. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim and said, I brought you out, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land. Who brought them up out of Egypt? See, the Lord did, and, but here an angel is speaking, saying, I, because he's speaking for God. Oh, uh, you can keep going. Okay. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. See, angels don't have covenants with people. God does. Angels are just servants, but this angel represents God. Judges 6, 11 through 14. 
the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress of people from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon said, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the excuse me, where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when he said, Do not let the Lord did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hands of, of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Who turned to him? The Lord. You see how the angels' actions are attributed to the Lord? This is dem- demonstrable all over the scripture, okay? The fact that people miss it just shows that we're not paying enough attention to the detail. What you see on the right-hand side, Genesis 18, three men are there. Um, the three men speak. One of them keeps speaking, and when he does, it is as if the Lord is speaking in the first person. That's because it must be the angel of the Lord. You can see that in Genesis 24, uh, verse 7 and verse 40. Genesis 31, you see the entire list here, right? My point in doing this is saying that there is an angel throughout the Older Testament. I did this in less than 10 minutes, okay? If you spend a few hours on it, you'll find them everywhere. He is different than any other angel because very often people worship They take off their shoes, and he speaks in the first person for God. God calls him the angel of his presence, and there's another Hebrew expression, the angel of my face. This is because God cannot be seen. So why does the commander of the Lord's army show up? Because if God were standing there, figuratively speaking, you couldn't see him. So an angel representing his presence is there. The point is, is God would fight this battle, not Joshua. Joshua would have to go, he'd have to trust, he'd have to carry it out. But God's armies were there, and he wanted him to see it. Now, God's armies are not for you. You have to be for them. Does that make sense? Now, to make sure that you get this in in a way that you're probably not going to hear it in other places, go to the first chapter of Revelation. My view of angels is that the gospel is more trustworthy than an angel. My view of angels are that they are fallible, and I can prove that from Scripture uh, easily. It's not even hard to do. That the heavens are impure, but God's Word is pure. Uh, Paul said, if we are an angel from heaven, gave you a different gospel, you don't listen. The modern charismatic community has become obsessed with angels. I'm not. Not at all. Angels are heirs, Mm -mm. servants of the heirs of salvation. If you're in God's will, the angels work for you. Except one angel. And he works exclusively for God in a very unique way. Like we see Michael as as a warring angel. His name means he who is like God. We see Gabriel is a messenger. His name means he who stands in the presence of God, and he carries messages. The angel of the Lord's presence throughout the Older Testament speaks for God and is treated as if he were God, even though it's clear he's not. Watch this in Revelation. Uh, First chapter, first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, 
which God gave him. Who's the him? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants, Jesus' servants, what must soon take place. He, God, made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Everything that you see in red in the book of Revelation that is attributed to Jesus is actually the angel that always represented God, now representing Jesus. It's actually a huge endorsement to the divinity of Christ. The angel that represents God's presence now represents Jesus. When you say, hey, Jesus appeared to me, um, you may have had a vision of Jesus. Jesus is in a very physical location. He's at the right hand of God. That's a real place. The right hand of God. The way that he makes his revelation known to John is by sending an angel that has always represented God and now represents him. And when he speaks, his word is considered the same as Jesus' word. That's incredible. There is only one angel in all of the Bible that fits that. The term angel of the Lord is difficult because all angels are angels of the Lord. This angel has a different definite article. I would prefer to say the angel of the theophany. When God wants to make his presence known in a visible way, this angel represents him. Okay, that's the point. So who is the the man in John 5? We'll let you decide. But I'm telling you, I personally cannot accept that it's a pre-incarnate Jesus. And um, whatever you believe about it, you should probably consider of the special role of this angel. I would encourage you to look up these 16 verses and read them since it's 9.30 and uh, we're we're at the two-hour mark. Amen? Amen. Look, we're about to go into Jericho. How many Christians have been interested in the way the book of Revelation will play out? You cannot understand it without understanding the next chapter of uh, Joshua. You know what else you don't understand? You want to understand God's redemptive plan for mankind without understanding this chapter. You're about to find out that most of the bumper sticker Christianity theology, mostly about end times, is all completely wrong. And uh, the first book of prophecy in the Older Testament, the book of Joshua, in the sixth chapter, clears it up uh, as, as much as anything could. The book of Revelation and the book of Joshua are about a mighty king with the same name, Jesus, Yahweh's salvation, that are dispossessing the earth of its usurpers. The kings of the earth are hiding in caves for fear of this king, and there are signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and a series of judgments based on the number seven unfolded for mankind. That's where we're headed next week. So I look forward to seeing you there. Uh, Let's stand up and pray.